So, why did Jesus die? Let's start with a question. What do you think the following people might have in common? Madonna, Elton John, Jennifer Anderson, Robbie Williams, Naomi Campbell, and the Pope. Any offers? They don't use their real names. <laughs> they don't use their real names. That may well be true, actually, yeah. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> hmm? They're famous, yeah, they're, they're famous. Any, any, anything else? I'll, I'll tell you something. It's, it's a, it's a, they all wear a cross. Okay, they all wear a cross. Um, certainly from time to time they all wear a cross, but most of the time they wear a cross. And, uh, and many people today, don't they, go around wearing a cross? Um, either perhaps as a little brooch or an earring, or most commonly um, on a chain, on a gold or silver chain, around their necks. And I don't know if you, it's ever struck you how very odd that is. Because the cross was a form of execution. I wonder how you'd have felt if I'd walked in here today and I had a hangman's noose wrapped around my neck. You'd probably have thought I was a little bit eccentric, wouldn't you? So there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross, but why on earth do people wear a cross? Why is there such a focus in Christianity on the death of Jesus? What's so special about his death, that huge portions of the New Testament, of the Bible, those are all the books written about his life, are actually written about the events that surround his death rather than concentrating on what he did during his life. The film, The Passion of the Christ, I don't know whether any of you saw it, but it certainly made sort of headlines when it came out, didn't focus on Jesus' life so much, but it focused on his death. Why is that? What did he achieve And in particular, what might it mean, as some of those people in Broad Street said, articulated, if you like, what does it mean that he died for us? What was the problem that we needed him to die for us? There's a a little expression in the New Testament that, that says that he died for our sins. Well, what on earth does that mean? And how can it be relevant to us tonight? Um, in our lives today. Well, t- I'm going to ask you to pick up your Bibles and, um, and turn to page 1130. 1100, so it's near the end, towards the end of the Bible. 1130. And it is um, Romans, it's, the, it's, Paul's letter, it's from Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. So it's called Romans. In chapter 3 and verse 23, it's very near, um, it's on the right-hand column of that page of 1,130, and it's very near the bottom of the right-hand column. And it's verse 23. And this is what um, Paul, one of the greatest followers of Jesus, um, wrote. He said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says all, all have sinned. Every single person has sinned. I I don't know about you, but I find it really rather hard sometimes to admit when I've done something that's wrong. It's interesting, isn't it, that when there's a car crash, um, 
What happens? My wife, Kirsty, was coming out of the big new Tesco's um, on the Oxford Road earlier this year when a van driver ran into the back of her car. And actually, he was very nice about it. And he got out and he said, I'm so sorry, it's entirely my fault. But actually, very often, that is not what happens in a car accident, is it? Very often, both drivers blame each other, they shout at each other, um, and it's relatively rare that someone says, I'm terribly sorry, it's all my fault. I've borrowed a few things that some people have written on their accident claim forms that they've submitted to their insurance companies. And uh, here's a few of them. Going home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree that wasn't there. Another one. The other car collided with mine without giving warning of his intention. The third one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) And the last one I love. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. (laughs) Those are silly, aren't they? But, But I think if we're honest, if we're honest, we all have to admit that we do do things that are wrong. Sometimes people say, well, why does it matter? We're all in the same boat in that case. If we, if we all do things are wrong, why does it matter? But actually it does matter because what we do, the way we act, has consequences. And the things that we do wrong, which is what the Bible calls sin, that's all it means, the things that we do wrong, can be summarised, if you like, under, under four headings. And we'll just have a, a brief look at each of those. Firstly, something that we might call the pollution of sin. And we've used four P's to summarise it. The first P is pollution. The pollution of sin. And with your Bibles, if you'd like to just turn to, um, just back a little bit, if you've still got your finger of the page, if not, it's page 1010. Just let you find it. Page 1010. And this is in um, the Gospel of Mark, one of the stories about Jesus' life. And it's in chapter 7, on page 1010, and it's um, verse 20, which is on the right-hand, halfway down the right-hand column. And what's going on here is that Jesus is saying, in effect, that the things that we do wrong, what the Bible calls sin, spoils our lives. Jesus says here, he went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these things come from inside and defile a person. In other words, they pollute us, they spoil who we're meant to be. Now, I don't know about you as, as you as you read through that list with me, but maybe you thought, well, I don't do most of those things. But actually, any one of them is enough to spoil. I suppose it's a bit like making scrambled eggs. If you have one bad egg in it, you mix it all up, then the whole batch is spoiled, isn't it? And we can't just pick and choose, really, by saying, well, I keep nine out of the ten commandments, but I just have a bit of a problem with murder or, no, with with lying or whatever it is. Um, Jesus says that anyone, um, Jesus says that any one of those things 
can pollute us. So that's the pollution of sin. The second problem is the power of sin. The things that we do wrong tend to have a kind of addictive power in our lives. Whether that's looking at pornography on the internet or gossiping behind people's backs, we tend to get hooked into the things that we do that are wrong. Jesus says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, we we get addicted to it. Thirdly, there's the penalty of sin. There's something in us, isn't there, which cries out for justice. When we read of the terrible things, this little girl abducted today, something in us cries out for justice. Now, we don't know what's happened to her, but, but you know, we would want, if, if, if something terrible has happened to her, then we would want the people responsible to be brought to justice. Of course we would. Of course we would. But if you're anything like me, when it comes to myself, I tend to have a different rule. I find it very easy to to feel that way about other people and the things that other people say and do. Yes, they should be punished. They should. There should be justice. Absolutely. But when it comes to me, I'm kind of less happy when it's applied in my case. In other words, I suppose I'm a hypocrite. I'll give you a simple example. I travel into Reading every Wednesday morning um, at around 7.30. And I go out of the Vicarage Drive and I turn right and I head down towards the roundabout. And on a good day, I turn left at the roundabout because the shortest route, which would be to go straight on, on Southgate Lane, is forbidden between the hours of 7.30 and 8.45, to prevent rat runners from shortcutting through the estate. And um, because during those times, obviously there are a lot of school children out and about who are crossing the roads, and it's, it's a safety issue. And so it's for a good purpose. But every now and again, I'm going out of the drive, and I'm a bit late. And so I want to get there as quickly as I possibly can. And after all, I am not a rat runner. I live in Southcote. And so I forget about the rules and the camera, which is placed on the corner by the doctor's surgery, and I take the quick route into Reading. But on at least two or three occasions, I have received a letter with a very nice photograph of my car, and, uh, and also with a demand to pay a £30 fine. And I've been outraged. How could they treat a local resident like that? The people in the council ought to be fired. It's, it's, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. But do you see, I think I'm a pretty good bloke. But actually, I can be a complete hypocrite. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 2, verse 1, says this. He says, You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Well, I know that... That certainly can apply to me. And he goes on to say, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he goes on to say that the wages of sin is death, that there's a penalty to be paid. And that leads us on to the fourth consequence of the things that we do that are wrong, which is the partition of sin. Now, of course, all of us will die. Our earthly bodies will die. But this penalty that we just heard about 
is a spiritual death in addition, in which we're separated from God. So, the situation looks pretty grim. We've all sinned, and these are the consequences of our sin. And that's the bad news, if you like. But the gospel, and the word gospel means good news, but the gospel is the story of Jesus, is good news. And in fact, the good news is this. The good news is that God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in that situation. That in fact, he had a solution all along. He came to do something about it. So what was his solution? Well, one way of of explaining it um, is done by the Apostle Peter. um, uh, Why don't we turn to this? Page 1,218. Just page, turn to page 1,218. And we'll see, see what the solution is. And it's, it's chapter 2 and verse 24. So it's 1,218. It's on the right-hand column of that page, very close to the bottom. The last verse, in fact. And what... Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, what Peter says, that he, that's Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And this is what, well... Several Christian authors, if you like, describe as the self-substitution of God. What does that mean? That sounds like a bit of a a mouthful. The self-substitution of God. Well, here's a story, perhaps, that tells it better than anything else. On the 31st of July, 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz. As a reprisal, apparently this was, was always the case, the Gestapo selected 10 men arbitrarily from from out of the line, to die in a starvation bunker as a reprisal for the one who'd escaped. And as they were going down the line, one of the men they chose was a a man called Francis Gagenizdek. And as he was chosen, as he was called out, he shouted out, Oh no, my poor wife and children, I'll never see them again. And at that moment, a Polish man with round glasses and wire frames, stepped out of the line. And he said, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a wife and children. I want to die instead of that man. And to everyone's amazement, the Gestapo accepted his offer. And so he was sent to the starvation bunker as well. His name was Maximilian Colby. He was 47 years old, and he was taken with the nine others down to the bunker. And apparently he was an amazing man. He he got them all praying and singing, and there was an extraordinary sense of hope and purpose in a place where there was usually absolute despair. But in the end, of course, they starved to death, one by one. He was the last one to die. Um, They killed him by lethal injection of carbolic acid on the 14th of August, 1941. And 41 years later, his death was put in its proper perspective in St. Peter's Square in Rome, amongst a crowd of 140,000 people, was Francis Gagenizdek, the one who'd been saved by him. And the Pope described Colby's death as a victory won like 
a victory like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ. And Francis Gaginisdek's obituary was printed in the newspaper, and it said that he spent the rest of his life going around telling people what Maximilian Kolbe had done for him, because he died in his place. And in an even more amazing and wonderful way, that is what Jesus has done for you and for me. He endured crucifixion. Cicero described crucifixion as the most cruel and hideous of tortures. First, before he was crucified, Jesus was tied to a whipping post. He was flogged with four or five thongs of leather interwoven with sharp, jagged bone and lead. He was laid on the cross. Six-inch steel spikes were driven through his forearms just above the wrists. Um, And then his ankles turned over and, and another spike driven between the Achilles tendon and the bone. Um, and then he was hoisted up um, uh, and, the, and, the, and the cross dropped into a socket in the ground and there he was left in intense heat and exposed to ridicule of the crowd and he hung in unthinkable agony for six hours while his life drained away. And yet, the Bible tells us that the worst part of his suffering was not the physical suffering or even the total rejection by the world. <clears throat> but actually... What the Bible describes as worse than these things was the spiritual agony of being separated from God, not for his own sins, but for ours. He bore our sin, or he took the penalty for us. Let's now turn to, um, a bit further back in the Bible, into the Old Testament, to page 742. I'm making you work a bit tonight. Page 742. Um, Some of you who were here last week will remember that I said that Jesus, in his lifetime, fulfilled more than 300 prophecies that were written hundreds of years before he even was born. And this happens to refer to one of them. Um, But it's a passage from Isaiah the prophet. It's 742. It's chapter 53 and verse 6. So it's very near the the, the top left-hand corner of the page. Um, And and it says this, it says, we all, that's all of us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And one of the ways that I found helpful in understanding what happened on the cross um, is, is this. Um, let me get a spare book from over here. Okay. <clears throat> so let, let, let's say that, um, that this hand um, represents Jesus here. And Jesus never did anything wrong. And so if God is, is in heaven and, and this is Jesus, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing that separates Jesus and God. <clears throat> He's in perfect, perfect union, perfect communion, if you like, um, with God. But on, on this hand, let this represent us. And if you like, this book can represent the sin in our lives. And, and the sin acts like a, like a barrier. And so that's our position. That's, that's Jesus and that's us. And the sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. We don't have if you like, a clear communication with God. 
It says, we like, all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But what happened on the cross is that God laid on him, that's what that verse just said, God laid on him our iniquity, our sin, if you like. And so Jesus took our sin. And that's why he was in spiritual agony on the cross, because he was cut off from God. For the first time in his life, he was completely cut off from God. But do you see where that leaves us? That leaves us as if we had never sinned. That's how God sees us when we accept this thing that Jesus has done for us on the cross and we're free to have a relationship with him. So that was the solution. That was God's solution. And what was the result of that solution? Well, the result of what Jesus has done for us on the cross is is an extraordinary mystery, really, which people have struggled to pin down and describe for 2,000 years. But I'm going to finish by describing to you three simple pictures, if you like, which are often used in the Bible to explain what was going on when Jesus died and how it affects each one of us now. But, But I want to be clear about something. These ideas are not the actual thing itself. They are attempts to explain the mystery that happened on the cross of what Jesus has done for us. And in your groups, you may want to explore them a bit further, or you may even come up with some other suggestions of your own. The Bible has, in fact, uses many more than three different pictures to explain it. But these are three, and uh, I'm going to go through them just one by one briefly. And the first idea is taken from a court of law. And um, the Apostle Paul said that through Jesus' death on the cross, we have been justified. Now, justified is a legal term. And um, there's quite a helpful kind of almost schoolboy definition, schoolboy, schoolgirl definition, um, is that what does justified mean? Well, justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, it's clever, isn't it? Just as if I'd never sinned. It, it, that's, that's, if you like, a, a sort of nice definition. But to illustrate this, there's a story of two friends who were at school together. And they went on to, to university together, and then they went their separate ways. And one of them went in to read law, and, and, and became a barrister, and then became a high court judge. And the other, for a number of reasons, um, went downhill, got into drugs, got into crime, ended up um, in a life of crime. And years later... The criminal of the two found himself up in front of his old friend, the judge. And and he pleaded guilty because he'd he'd committed the offence. And uh, the judge was in a difficult position because the judge loved his old friend. They'd been the closest of friends when they'd been at school. And that's how it is, in in one sense, with us and God. He he looks at us, and despite our sins, despite our faults, he loves us. But he was also a judge. This friend was also a judge. And he couldn't just say to his old friend, oh, okay, off you go, don't worry, doesn't matter. Justice had got to be done. It has to be done. And God is is holy. He's a God of love, But he's also a God of justice, and we know that justice is right, even if it is for ourselves. He can't just say, it doesn't matter. 
And so what the judge did in this story is that he, he fined him the appropriate amount. He'd, he'd, he'd been done for fraud or something, and he, and he fined him £10,000 or whatever it was. And then he took off his robes, and he went down from the bench, and he went round, <clears throat> and he got his checkbook out, and he wrote a cheque for £10,000, and he gave it to his friend. He paid the penalty for his friend. And that's what Jesus has done for you and for me. The second picture which explains the cross, is more about relationships. And you see, I explained the root and the result, if you like, of, of, of our sin is a broken relationship with God, is a barrier between ourselves and God. And the result of the cross is, a, is the possibility of a, of a reconciled, or in other words, restored, that's what the word means, a restored relationship with God. Sometimes people say, isn't it just barbaric? The idea of God punishing an innocent person, his son, Jesus, on our behalf. Isn't that, isn't that barbaric? Well, if that had been the case, then it would have been barbaric. But God was in Christ. It was God himself who came in the person of Jesus and laid down his life for you and for me. He did that for you and me. And once that relationship is restored... The wonderful thing is it so often leads to other relationships being restored as well. And uh, for me, uh, I, I came to believe in Jesus, Jesus 12 years ago um, on an Alpha course. And when I was young, I really messed up quite badly. And I caused a lot of hurt with my parents. And, um, and, and after that, I had rather an awkward relationship with them. I mean, they still loved me unconditionally. I know they did. But I, had a, I found it very difficult. Um, I found it awkward because I, f- I carried a lot of guilt and um, I didn't know how to deal with it. They always loved me, but I, I felt I couldn't get close to them because of what I'd done. And after I, I came to faith, I was moved to, to write them um, a letter and tell them how sorry I was for all of the ways that I'd messed up when I was a child. Or not child, when I was, a, when I was growing up. And for all of the pain that I'd caused them. And, uh, and I told them what great parents they'd been, and, and, you know, despite all the trouble I'd given them. And I got back a wonderful letter from my dad, which I'll just read a little excerpt. He says, My dear Mark, because they're the only people in the world who call me Mark. <laughs> um, that was the, my given name. Um, Thank you for your really wonderfully kind letter, which we shall treasure forever. He's he's got a bit of humour, my dad. So he said, with your permission, we shall use it as a character reference if we decide to take up fostering. (laughs) We're delighted that you and Kirsty have found a Christian faith which has deep meaning for you and that has given you both a fresh outlook on life. And he he just finishes out masses of love to you both. But after that, our relationship was restored. And, um, and I knew I'd been forgiven. And so we, we were reconciled. We, our relationship was restored. And that's what God has done for us through Jesus, through what he did on the cross. I suppose the third picture um, is that of the marketplace. Because what Jesus did for us on the cross... Um, can free us from, from a lot of the bad stuff that we carry around as baggage in our lives. 
And uh, there's a picture of the marketplace, and this is the ancient world marketplace. And, um, of course, just like today in, in the ancient world, people got themselves into debt. But one of the ways you got yourself out of debt then was to sell yourself into slavery. Now, that, that sounds appalling in our sort of terminology today, but it was actually a way of avoiding starvation. And so what you do is you go to the marketplace and you would basically have a price around your neck to sell yourself into slavery. And that price would be equal to the debts that you owed. So that when someone bought you to be their slave, all your debts were cleared. That, that was, that's what it was called. And it was called a ransom price. That was the word. That was the word. It was a ransom price. And of course, now in theory, if someone who loved you had come by that marketplace and seen you there, they could have offered to pay the ransom price and then just said, go free. I let you go. I've come to, and Jesus said, I've come to give my life as a ransom. That's another picture. That's what he's done for us. He's paid the price for us in order to set us free. The singer Lionel Richie was being interviewed by Jeremy Vine on TV a while ago, and and, uh, apparently he came from a very poor background. And he started to make money out of his singing, and he he obviously got quite wealthy. And one time it was his father's birthday, and he gave his father this massive, great present like this, all wrapped up. And his father was really excited about it, and his dad opened the first wrapping, and there was another wrapping inside, and he opened another wrapping, and yes, you've got the picture, he went wrapping and wrapping and wrapping, and, and his father's face fell and fell and fell, with each time it got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, uh, and then right in the middle of the package was a tiny slip of paper, and it, on it it said, all debts paid. And his father said, what? Have you paid off my credit cards? And he said, yeah. He said, I've paid all your credit cards. And he said, what about the car? And he said, yeah, I've, I've paid off your car as well. He said, what about the mortgage? He said, yeah, I've paid off your mortgage as well. All debts paid. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for each one of of us. He paid our debts. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, of course, for lots of us, this isn't an instantaneous happening. It's a process. Some things I found fell off me the, the moment I came to faith. Other things have been a long, slow process. But each year, as, as the journey continues, um, Jesus sets us free more and more and more. And so all I can say in closing, really, is that God loves us. He loves us, he loves you, he loves me, and he wants to set us free. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, it's really to accept what he's done for us on the cross. We looked at the analogy with the, with the criminal and the judge, and, and just like when the judge came round and offered him the cheque, the criminal could have said, no thank you, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it myself. I'll, I'll take the penalty myself. And it's like that when God offers us forgiveness. We, we, we're completely free to say, no thank you, I don't want it. I'll live with the consequences. Or we can say, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. I I, I receive it. I receive your forgiveness. And so I'm just going to finish now, um, if I may, with just a a short prayer. And um, you can join in with it if you like, um, but please don't feel under any pressure to do it. You don't have to. Um, It's perhaps for someone here tonight who's feeling 
do you know, I don't think I've ever accepted that gift before, but I'd actually quite like to. If, if that's something you feel you'd like to do, then just silently in your heart, pray this along with me as I pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done for me on the cross. Thank you that you died for me in my place in order that I could be set free. Thank you for your forgiveness. Please help me to lead my life following Jesus. Thank you. Amen.